He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. And we are live. Well, welcome back. It's the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. I'm your co-host, Jack Heald, with Philip Ovedia. Joining us today is Alexander Cortez, otherwise known online as Ajax. Phil, how you doing, gentlemen? Why the Why the heck do we have this uh, the, a bro science guy on here? Well, he's never uh, been he's know, never been fat. Exactly. <laughs> uh, probably too much of our audience, Ajax, won't need a uh, introduction. Um, honestly, uh, Alex was uh, Alexander was one of the uh, early. Uh, people I came across in this space, and and as you know, the world tends to work out. We ended up, uh, you know, interacting more and more and getting to know each other through some mutual connections. And uh, he's one of the people who I've certainly been wanting to get on the show for quite a while, and we uh, finally made it happen here. Uh, so you know, Alexander's really been uh, uh, one of the I would say leaders in the uh, online movement around uh, health and fitness uh, in particular. And uh, he's really done some, what I would say are groundbreaking, innovative things to uh, bring the fitness movement to the people as it is. So uh, excited to uh, hear about his story and to get into that. Uh, and with that, I'm gonna uh, turn it over and uh, let, uh, let Alexander kind of fill in a little bit Tell us a little bit about your background, how you got involved in the fitness space, and uh, and then we're just going to have a great conversation from there. Yeah, we're going to be here, guys. Um, background, for those who, who don't know me, so I'm 33 now, and I've been a personal trainer since I was 20. So that's the only professional job I've ever had, my professional role. So I've been working with clients for, yeah, I mean, going on essentially 13 years, and I started personal training when I was in college. And I didn't originally plan on making a career in fitness, but as it worked out, I'm still doing it to this day. And I've trained probably well over 10,000 client sessions, hundreds of clients online. I've certainly worked with tens of thousands of people. Um, yeah, and I realized many years ago that there's sort of three, there's three fundamental desires that all human beings have. There's three things everybody wants. We want health, we want relationships, and we want wealth. Relationships and wealth those are not my areas, but health is. And as the saying goes, very cliched, if you don't have your health, what do you really have? So trying to get people healthy, that's my, you know, that's my MO. That is what I strive to do. Uh, and you know, relative to the, the general population, as I call it, regular people, you know, people who are not super fitness enthusiasts, but regular people. If you're going to help those people, you have to make your solutions very workable, very practical, you know, pragmatic. And the, the play on bro science, as I call it, it's this idea that if you take hard science, clinical data, you know, clinical evidence, uh, you know, research-based study, and you combine it with real-world real world practicality and application, you get this mixture of, of bro science, where you're going to have a lot of anecdotal evidence, you're going to have some stuff based on the current state of the evidence, you're going to have a mix of N equals one kind of situations where like, if you want it's working for this person, keep doing it if it's getting the effects we want. Um, so that's sort of the, uh, the, the crux of my practice. Uh, but you know, it's also like a pun of in itself since bros, you know, as a term has a, there's a connotation to it that you must be an idiot, you know, especially if you're in fitness. You know, there's an assumption that personal trainers and guys who are like bro enthusiasts, bro culture, that everybody's dumb. You know, it's just, it, it comes to the territory. So that's my way of sort of flipping it. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, I'll I'll uh, fully admit that uh, you know that that bro moniker kind of uh, you know is a way for the uh, healthcare professionals, all of my colleagues, I think, to try and look down and discredit um, you know guys that are doing this that don't have the proper letters after their name, uh, and uh, you know, uh, fully admit, you know, I've admit many admit admitted many of my past mistakes. Um, you know, and thinking that same way. And then as I opened my mind, as I started asking those new questions, those different questions that we talk so much about on these shows, I found 
guys like yourself, uh, the bros teaching me about, um, you know, uh, actual science and, you know, how people uh, work uh, and uh, how to bring this to uh, the real world. You know, one of the things that I've always found interesting about what you do is, you know, how you were able to translate that from, uh, you know, the one-on-one sort of traditional personal training model, uh, you know, in the gym working with someone to uh, bringing it to the masses, you know, the online programs and everything that you've bec- you are so good at uh, doing. So uh, talk a little bit about how you kind of got into that space. You know, how did you get from no. just personal training in the traditional sense to being, you know, one of the leaders in online uh, personal training so, you know, personal training, as you said, it's, it's a one-on-one job. You're talking with somebody for an hour. It's, it's a coaching experience. It's a highly personal experience. And over the course of a week, optimally, maybe you see them three times and they come in on their own as well. More likely it's once or twice. And you're hoping that you're instilling these good habits and practices in them. And that experience, of course, doesn't scale. But as an experience of in itself, it's an educational experience. You are acting as an educator. You are a teacher. Um, so that's all I did for seven years straight, the first part of my career. I just only trained in person. Didn't, didn't do anything else. Um, and I realized at a certain point, like, okay, how can I turn this into a business? How can I help people ethically and profitably? The way I see it fundamentally, I cannot guarantee a positive change in your mindset or your motivation, or whatever your psychological obstacles are. You know, trying to deal with human psychology can be very nebulous, very vague. There's many theories on personality and how to cultivate intrinsic motivation, self-determination theory. Uh, you know, are your issues from childhood? You know, do we need to apply a more cognitive behavioral approach and talk through them with solution-based uh, you know, practices? Like that's not my role, obviously. You know, that's the, that's the role of a psychologist, therapist psychiatrist. That's not my role. My role that I know I can objectively help you in is that I can give you really good, effective information that if applied properly, will have a positive effect. So I I want to make it as simple as possible, but if I tell you to do A and that gets you the outcome that you want, awesome. What we're doing is working. You know that it's working. Now you have some confidence in the process. So I want to make it as action-based as possible. So with online training, with online education, what I realized is that most people when they get online, yeah, we could get into their, their deeper issues, but fundamentally everybody's just looking for good information, useful information. And I knew from my days when I was when I was a teenager, I was 15, 16, I was going to the going to the drugstore looking at muscle magazines. What most people look for, certainly most men, is good workouts. <laughs> Yeah, it's very cliche again, but like we open up a magazine, it's like, let's just scroll through the workouts. What, what am I going to do for a workout? Um, I know I did that behavior, you know, many, many times over. And I'd see guys at the gym. I'd see people coming going to the gym and they do the same thing. They'd be on their phones. They'd be in a magazine. They'd be pulling out a book, something they'd rolled up a newspaper, whatever it was, some kind of literature. And they'd, they'd be looking for a workout to do, for a routine to follow. Just give me steps. Tell me to do one, two, three, four, five, six. Tell me to do what exercises. Okay. And so... When I decided to work in the online space, I'm like, what's you know, what's the best way I could educate people and help them? I could give them a plan. I could give them a workout program, a blueprint, tells them very clearly what to do. And it's, of course, on them if they follow it, don't follow it. But the actions are there. And if they do them, they get positive outcome. They build muscle. They lose body fat. You know, a metabolic physiological change takes place. Um, so I always oriented all of my online marketing, all of my you know, online offerings around crafting and spreading those simple solutions to people and it's been extremely successful uh, there's another word for it um at this point if i if i look at the stats i've had something like eighty thousand people you know purchase my programs the last five or six years and i've gotten feedback from obviously not all of them i've gotten feedback from probably close to two or three percent of them pretty good conversion rate the thousands of people of you know before and after photos i lost 20 pounds i put on x amount muscle mass i improved my you know, my blood, my blood pressure went down, my heart rate decreased, you know, my, my blood work improved. I went to see my physician. Um, yeah, I, I, I solved my pain. I don't have knee pain anymore. I don't have back pain anymore. Or yeah, I'm older and you helped me, you know, train pain. You, know, you helped me train pain-free. My shoulders have are not hurting for the first time in 30 years. 
So I get positive feedback constantly. And of course, I'm always trying to refine what I'm doing and offer people you know, better and better blueprints and practices. Uh, but having that solution-based approach and relying on relying on more of like a technical offering of you know, actual instructions versus, you know, let's say more of like a bro marketing aspect of like you know, over-promising, I'm going to put 40 pounds on you. Here's how to add three inches to your biceps. I'm like, none of that's actually happening. You know, for anyone that actually works with the human body, there you know there are obvious physiological boundaries in place that preclude superlative results happening overnight. You know, this is a, it's a long term process. You know, so I sell people on that, and they apply it, they use it, and it works. I'm I'm just I'm fascinated with I, I, Phil. You missed it. I told Alexander. I think I've probably followed him on Twitter longer than anybody else. I followed on Twitter and I've watched uh, I was even there when you got banned mm. and I was, I was part of the free AJAC uh, community, <laughs> it works. Um, but I've been fascinated um, by, by your success in particular. It's not like there aren't, I don't know, 500 million fitness trainers on Twitter why Ajax? Why is Ajax successful? I'm asking you. I don't know the answer. Now, I have some theories, but I want to yeah. hear your idea. I believe the reasons I am successful, if I let me try to pick three things. Yeah. Foremost is that I have you know, what you could almost call a clinical experience. I have applied practical experience of working with people one one. And very few people that I've seen in the fitness industry actually have that. Because of the because of the social media digital marketing tools we have available, you can you can have a very good physique. You can, you know, you have a great body. You're a guy or girl, you have a great body. That already gives you authority. You know, automatically. Right. Okay, you have a great body. And if you market yourself well, you can sell yourself, you grow an audience. And you do. Okay, like you know, you're successful um, you know, within that lens. Whether your your workouts or your information is good, <laughs> whether any of it's actually valid. Yeah, it's a whole different question. You know, for myself, I never want to be known on the basis of you know what I look like. You know, I don't show my physique too much until very recently. Even I never really, I didn't really show my physique. I didn't show myself working out so much. Um, I want to be known for having practical knowledge that is proven out in the real world. And if you apply it and use it, and you know it gets a result, oh wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. So I want to build a reputation based on my my knowledge, my intellect. Um, and then all that's come from, you know, working with people. And I think I've done that pretty successfully. And yet at the same time, because I have that practical experience, being able to express yourself and articulate yourself well, especially online, you know, how you write is expressive of your ability to think. If you've never spoken to anyone, if you've never talked to anyone, if, you, if you're not someone who is a teacher and you spent years teaching a subject, it's very unlikely you're going to be effective at teaching that subject in mass online. Maybe you will. It'll probably be very scripted. You know, there'll probably be, you know, maybe someone else taking over that process. You know, and, and for my, um, in my situation, I've been teaching for years. I still teach. So I'm very much at ease with talking about what I'm doing or instructing people, whether it be, you know, verbally live, whether it be written word. Um, so that ability to express, my, express myself through writing, you know, that's you know, probably more than anything else fundamentally built my career. Uh, this means I can tweet a lot. I write a lot, basically. I send a newsletter every week, multiple times a week writing to people. My programs, I have a very high output of program solutions for people, something around, yeah, you know, I've lost track at this point, something around like 60 something programs I've written in the last you know, five years or so. Like every month I'm coming out with something else, whether it be for, you know, whether it be for the back or legs or knee pain or shoulder health or you know, chest training or, you know, something oriented for, you know, the over 40 crowd. I'm always crafting something of, okay, here you go. This works for you. Go use it. Um, and all that has a network effect over time where people know sure. it's like, wow, this guy's his output's really high. He's always answering questions. He's always sharing useful information. He seems at least like he knows what he's talking about. I'm going to continue to choose to follow him. And he's also not resorting to viral marketing or you know, I call this like bonehead marketing. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick up on the latest trend and piggyback on it and you know make it about myself. I'm not doing TikTok challenges. Um, you, you never see me doing anything. Uh, grotesque that way <laughs> as, as i look at it uh, well, I mean, you know, over time it builds credibility that that leads to the next question which is um and, and i want to lay the the foundation here 
you have a fairly eclectic set of interests for for a gym bro. Uh, in other words, uh, if somebody didn't know that your your metier is fitness and just read the non-fitness types of things that you write, they'd think you were a college professor. Maybe. You've, you've, you've got a really deep and broad set of interests that you've shared. I can remember in particular a set of uh, uh, tweets that were referencing some of the ancient Greeks. You've done a, a lot of research into fitness historically, going back it looks to me thousands of years. Yes. How in the world did you get into that? I mean, <laughs> when when I, I realize it's books mm-hmm. and, and there's libraries yeah. and you can go find those things, mm-hmm. but but why you when there's when those other half a billion trainers haven't ever done that? You're literally the first first guy in in your realm of the woods that's ever done that. And and to me, it just it, it levered your credibility up in my mind hmm. massively. Oh, this guy is really interested, not just in making big muscles, but in the entire history of fitness and how it's developed over time. I, I just love to hear you talk about how you, how you got into that and one of the fun things you found and maybe some of the stupid things you found. Yeah, so... Yeah, I, I've always had this obsession, this like overall like personality obsession of like, why did this happen? Why, why do we do these things? Whatever it is, I want to know why. Um, you know, it's like it's like a little child. Like, why? Why? He just keep asking why. And he's like, shut up! Like I can't. I don't have an answer anymore. So I was always asking why. Contextual to fitness, there's lots of things we do in fitness. I mean, the, the scope of fitness practices from the exercises, like why squats, why deadlifts, why bench press, why compound movements. You know, why are these things that we believe are good? Like, why do we think they're good? What are the premises behind this? So I was always asking this question, why? And I mean, I've had this attitude my entire career. Like, I'm always trying to self-examine my knowledge. Yeah. And in fitness, you realize it's a very broad field. How do you even accurately define health? Like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be healthy you know, versus fit? There's all these sort of philosophical questions that arise. Yeah. Um, and I've always been a, a student of philosophy. And so, you know, the first few years I was you know, studying fitness, you know, beyond the yeah, beyond the technical information, which is you know, sort of the clinical stuff, and a lot of that's even very vague and not very well known. You know, I realize like you're you have to approach it as a philosophical field. You have a combination of, of science, then you also have the application of art, and your ability to think about it is going to determine the quality in which you practice. So you have to be a good thinker. Um, now, if you want to be a good thinker, the best thing. I'm, I'm sorry. Don't just go blow and write by something that profound. <laughs> I I like to to put a pin in these things when mm-hmm. somebody says something. But that is that is profound. If you want to have a good quality of life, you've got to be a good thinker. I think I quoted you correctly there. Yes. With with my head injury right now, God knows what what you actually said, <laughs> but that's what I heard. All right, I didn't yeah, no, to no, interrupt no. the flow. Oh, no, you're but, good. No, but no, that's no. big stuff, man. That's yeah. seriously big stuff. Yeah. And, and just to kind of follow up on that, to get your perspective of, you know, how do you figure out the good information out there? Because, you know, fitness, nutrition, um, you know, the reality is, is that um, you you can find the, the data, the science as it is to support, you know, just about anything you want yeah. to believe. Um, you know, no one's really done, uh, you know, a whole lot of randomized controlled trials on fitness routines. Uh, so, um, how, how do you decide what is useful, uh, and what is good information, uh, which you then incorporate and you pass on, uh, versus, you know, the garbage that's out there and and 95% of the, you know, half a million trainers like Jack said are out there are garbage, (laughs) Uh, so, you know, what, how do, how do you get through that problem? So, so to answer, so to answer that question, sort of reference back to, to Jack's question, you know, about the, the history of like why I got so deep in the history, um, the way the, one of the primary filters I use is always looking at historical evidence. So we know quite provably that people have been healthy before in the past. You know, they, <laughs> you know, it, you know, it's not, this is not like an arguable point. It's like, yeah. you know, have, do you have people live to be the age of 80? Yeah, yes, we know that they have. Okay. 
have people live their life and been physically active their whole life. Yes, like yeah, we can go whether it's archaeological evidence, whether it's um, yeah, whether it's just yeah, what would be the term for it? Not archaeological, whether it's you know, sort of like cultural historical evidence, written evidence. Like okay, people have been living a long time. We know that exercise has been done since really the dawn of recorded history. We can take the evolutionary biology approach of like okay, what were we hunting in one thousand BC? Yeah, what, what was ancient Stone Age man eating? Like we, we know roughly approximately what it means to be healthy. You have to be able to move. You live a long time. You're not dying horribly from disease. Okay. So my, my bias for my main filter is what has been done over time. If there are certain practices that have been done for decades, centuries, hundreds of years, thousands of years, and we can see these training traditions or these, or these eating practices even that have been done for very, very, very long periods of time. That routinely produce exceptional health, health outcomes. Yeah. We should study those things. Yeah, you know, we should weigh that as like, okay, that's significant. You know, something in there is right. It is it is correct. It is truthful. It's good information. It's good practices. Um, it's reflective of our biology. Like that has to be investigated. You know, in the twentieth century, I mean, and th this gets very meta, as I call it. With the shift in medicine in like 1930s, 40s, where there was this push towards like a molecular view of biology. So this idea, this is like sort of a rocker. You could get very conspiratorial theory, but th this part is true. Like yeah, there was a big push, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, where the Rockefeller Foundation funded many science departments across the United States to push towards studying basically like molecular theories of biology. And this was reflective of like the petrochemical industry of like, okay, like we've got this ability to manipulate petrochemicals and and matter on this you know very minute level that's pretty cool like that is that's super cool a lot of great stuff's come out i'm not you know critiquing it that way but you know because we can study these things and because it's so profitable at the same time we want this to be the emphasis um and i think what you saw the last so many decades because of that is that there was this divorce from anecdotal historical evidence to clinical evidence and study and the issue that takes place within academia and within you know, the clinical academic environment is that it's very easy to come up with you know, what I call sort of like medical jargon based theories and ideas about how something works. And then you start crafting studies and you start doing research for the sake of proving out your premises being correct. Yeah. You know, and this is always the, the battle in, yeah. in science of like, okay, I have a theory. I really want my theory to be right. How can I massage the data and massage the study and, how can I how can I view the body in a certain way that will prove what I already think to be true? If you're a good scientist, you know, whether you whether you have the credentials or not, if you are an honest, good ethical scientist, you are always trying to prove yourself wrong in everything that you do. You're not trying to be right. So, and then now, you know, based off of that, what we saw, like I said, the last many decades in medicine was you know, like low fat theory, you know, cholesterol theory. Um, you know, or you know, sort of the ca calories and calories out, which calories in, calories out is, is true, you know, on a thermodynamic basis. But now, you know, we know today that there's more factors to it than just the calories. There's there's satiety. There's the quality of the food. You know, there's you know, where are the actual macronutrients are being eaten. Does that play a role? You know, so we're, we're getting better. But when you have these certain, you know, essentially pet theories that then become industries into themselves, that then a bunch of drugs are built off of, you know, to treat you got like a multi-head monster at that point. It's like, what's the problem there? I'm like, I mean, if you back it up a whole bunch of steps, it's like the problem was the premise from the very beginning. Like, are we sure that cholesterol is the issue? Is it just the, is it just the cholesterol or is that a side effect of the systemic inflammation and the excess calorie intake and the lack of activity? Did, did the food choice play any role at all? No, not, it was just, it's just cholesterol. Like now we're getting very isolated and the human body is like a complex you know, multimodal system, you know, reducing any, reducing any complex system down to a single input, single factor, you're either going to be incredibly brilliantly right, or more than likely, high probability, you're going to be incredibly wrong. I can remember back in the early 80s when uh, some of the, some of the first of the really incredibly stupid medical advice became popular. Uh, I remember in particular, eggs are bad for you and butter is bad for you. Um, and I, I had two thoughts. Thought number one was that's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, but the second thought was was as along the lines you talked about. The human body is 
an almost indescribably complex mechanism, set of interlock, interlocking systems. I want to hear about the test they used to nail down this particular conclusion. And the reality is, um, most of the time, the tests are bad. Um, I've got a friend who's 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 makes a a medical device, and he's working on building a uh, uh, clinical trials. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that he found out is that the average number of participants in a clinical trial sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, yes, the NIH, guess what that number is? Average number of participants in an NIH-sponsored clinical trial, 19. I was going to say 20, so. (laughs) 19. So all of that is to say there's an awful lot of, of just shitty research that's passing for science out there. Oh, yeah. I love I I love the the prove it in the gym uh point of view that you bring to the to the table. I mean well this this I mean this this is the this is the replication crisis of course in science. I mean this, this is not a new thing. Like I remember reading articles about this I mean almost, probably about a decade ago and it's across multiple fields. You know, the social sciences are the most are the most notorious. You know, science is psychology. Is that really a science? We've talked about that. You know, but even the hard sciences, even biology, even medicine, you test. You know, and I'm not the first person to. This is not made up statistic on my part. Like I, I think I recall something like the, like you know, the head of a Harvard Research Review was openly saying, like at least half, if not more, all studies done today, literally in all fields. Are, are bullshit. They're not. They can't replicate. Yeah, can't it's just. It's. It's a bad study. Bad design. Like, and we've got theories now built off of research done years ago that's never been even replicated in the first place. But we're still believing it. Oh yeah. I, I mean, mean this, this most is recently, replication crisis. Most recently, we, the, we've got that in Alzheimer's. There's there was a theory that was promoted in the mid two thousands. Yes. About the origins of all Alzheimer's that it got something to do with some plaque in the brain. Turns out the the data was falsified. And yeah. there have been billions of dollars spent chasing like two this, billion dollars. This non-existent uh, situation. So, all right. So, what do we do? Help us out here. We've, 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 <laughs> yeah, how do we've, we've, how, uh, we've indicated there's a problem. Let's make it better. How do we fix things? How do we move forward? So, yeah, tell us uh, a little bit from your perspective, you know, what you see. So one of the big questions mm-hmm. I think that always comes up that, you know, would be good for us to talk about is the, uh, you know, I guess you could say nutrition versus fitness. Uh, and although they're not exclusionary, you know, you always get into this conversation about what what should come first, what needs to come first. You know, if someone is unhealthy, um, you know, can they exercise their way out of it? Can they eat their way out of it, improve their eating to get out of it? Or does it really take both ultimately to, uh, you know, achieve good health? It, it takes both. Like this, optimally nutrition and you know, fitness, or you know, I should say nutrition and exercise, optimally they run on a feedback loop. Exercise tells your body what to do with the food you consume. Now, that is the way I like to look at it. It's the way I phrase it to people. Like, yeah, how do you how do we change our physiological function? How do we change our metabolism? By exercising, we're expending energy. We build our body's overall capacity for energy expenditure, which is critical for for longevity, for health, for you know, basically being a robust living system. So we're expanding our body's capacity. We're building up our tissue. We're changing how our body metabolizes fat, glucose, protein. We're doing all those things. And yes, it's true that enough exercise can counteract the hypothetical effects of a supposedly bad diet. If your energetic expansion is high enough, you can, quote unquote, get away with bad eating. Why? Because if you're, this is the term that's used is a metabolic flux or G-flux. If your metabolic flux is extremely high, if you're expending 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 calories a day, at that point, you do need to essentially fuel the machine. You just, you need energy to expend energy. Um, and, you know, there's recent research on this that for people who exercise a lot, um, you know, we're talking like double digit numbers, you know, up, upwards of, you know, 15 to 20 hours a week of exercise. Their metabolic 
rate is almost always to have their calorie intake. It's very difficult for them to actually, you know, gain weight, obviously, or to even eat enough to meet it. Like that over time, they'll steadily get leaner, their body will start to slow down. And you know, this is like training for those high intensity, high expenditure in, in, individuals it goes in cycles. All of that said, that's not most people. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like that, that you are, if you're exercising more than 10 hours a week, you are an outlier. You are in the 1% of 1%. The overall picture is that, you know, Pareto, power distribution, eight to 90% of people exercise less than three hours a week. They're largely inactive. And for them, the food that they ingest, that's going to play the biggest role in their health. Yeah. By far. You know, the, the amount of exercise you objectively need to be healthy, not ultra elite fit, running an Ironman, competing in, you know, powerful CrossFit, just healthy where, okay, what I define as healthy, healthy blood pressure, healthy heart rate, healthy glucose sensitivity, relatively mid-range, you know, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, you know, everything that's sort of in the middle. Like, okay, your normal body weight, BMI roughly lines up. Okay, that's healthy. The amount of exercise you need to do that is, you know, for, for strength training, less than two hours a week. For aerobic activity, you know, maybe about three to four hours a week, you know, but largely low intensity walking. If you walk a half hour to an hour a day and lift weights twice a week and don't eat too much, just you know, eat as much as you need, you'll be healthy. It doesn't take that much. Um, but what kills people today, of course, it's, it's the food environment. Like we, we live in an obesogenic society. If you don't think about what you're consuming. Obesogenic, obesogenic did you say? Yeah. Is that what you said? Obesogenic. Yeah. I've never heard that word. That's real world. Word. It's a real I'm word. putting that one into my vocabulary. We yeah, live so in an obesogenic society. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's a good word. Like That's the modern, good environments, word. modern environment is set up to make us obese. Yeah. It is. You know, whether, you know, I mean, you can, you can get very... Uh, <laughs> particularly with breaking it down, it's like, well, how? Well, most people commute. Okay, that's one thing. So we're not walking much. Most cities, certainly in the United States, are not designed for a walking period. You look at the quality of the quality of food in schools, you know, the way, you know, the rise of fast food industry, you know, even the rise of you know, food on demand now. Yeah. So most people over the course of time will steadily overconsume calories. They'll end up gradually becoming overweight. As they get into their 30s, they'll start to lose lean body mass. And then you end up, you know, you're, you end up in that middle age. It's like, wow, I kind of go overweight, but you know, maybe you didn't, you didn't think you were that fat. It just kind of crept up on you. What do I do? Um, you know, so to counteract this, you have to be mindful of your inputs and, and your intake. Um, and that's where, you know, getting into like, well, what are you actually eating? You have to change what you're eating. I try to make that very simple for people. Like, what's a good diet? Good diet is simply one that meets your caloric needs, macronutrient needs, and then hopefully your micronutrient needs. If we break that down further, you're, I make this really simple for people. Your, your body's made out of protein, so you need amino acids. You need to ingest protein. Protein keeps you really full. You know, I mean, I, I, funny enough, there's books going back like It's like Dr. Atkins' original kind of theory, which he was quite correct in a lot of ways. Like yeah. high protein eating it keeps you full, minimizes you know these rises and falls in blood sugar, ensures a state level of energy, less likely to binge get cravings. We got protein take. If you're eating whole protein sources, which is basically you know, meat, dairy, eggs, there's going to be accompanying fat intake that will help with satiety and satisfaction and a lot of micronutrients. And then you have you know, your carbohydrates, which you know, complex carbohydrates or, or even simple. And when you combine simple carbs with a fat source, they do digest slower. And if you can do that in a reasonable moderation of eating at maintenance, your weight will stay the same, more or less. If you're exercising for that bit on top of that, you should be good to go. Like your blood work or anything else, your weight, you should be healthy. So walk 30 minutes to an hour every day, weight training twice a week. For most people, that's going to keep you healthy and assuming that you're eating somewhere in the neighborhood of not like a moron. Yes. Sounds good to me. But Alexander, it can't be that simple, you know. Should I be doing four by tens or three by eights or my drop sets or you know? Uh, and uh, yeah, you know, wait. All too often, I find people get caught up in the minutia of you know how many yes. grams of this should I be eating, how many micrograms of this, you know, should I be doing you know the four sets of ten or the three sets of eight? 
Um, and uh, it's just like, well, just get off the couch first. And then we can, uh, you know, eventually get to that problem to have. Yeah, I mean, the irony is if you look at like the actual clinical data, and there's a lot, obviously, on, on diet intake. You know, on on fat loss or you know healthy body individuals over time. There's there's a lot today on exercise science. The the clinical data indicates that all diets more or less are equal in terms of macronutrient proportions. So whether you're eating high carb or low carb or moderate protein or high protein or low fat or high fat, so long as you ingest enough calories and if your weight stays roughly the same, you're fine. <laughs> You know, like most of staying healthy is simply maintaining a normal body weight. If you can do just that, you are preventing a whole horde of problems that come with being overweight obese, mm-hmm. just normal body weight. You know, so, you know, the exact macros of whether, you know, was it 40% protein or 30%? Like what percentage of my carbs? I'm like, it, it doesn't really matter. You know, it, it's, if you just going it by numbers, that becomes very arbitrary. We know what our basic needs are for human nutrition. We know we need protein. We know we need some amount of fat. We know we need some amount of carbohydrates. You know, the, the arguments about carbs being like essential, non-essential. You know, I got, this is like my best example. Look at the macronutrient composi- composition of human breast milk. Human breast milk is 87% carbohydrates. And somewhere around, I think like, you know, I believe it's like five, 6% fat, the rest is protein. So, so mother's milk, when, you, when a woman is feeding an infant, she's feeding them mostly carbs basically. So, I mean, I would, I would say, I would argue like, yeah, carbohydrates are preferred, preferred fuel source for human beings. You know, having a ready, a steady and ready supply of glucose is essential for good overall metabolic function and health. Like I mean, maybe later on in life, if you're metabolically dysfunctional, you know, if you've been obese for a very long time, you're dysregulated. Okay. Like I'll, I'll entertain the idea that maybe completely limiting carbs, you know, being a permanent state of ketosis, may, maybe that is better. Yeah, maybe it is. Yeah, sure. We could certainly, you know, hypothesize about that. The people who are doing that right now will know in 10, 20 years whether that really works out for them. I'm I'm curious to see that. Yeah. But you know, point being, like we know carbohydrates are fine. You need protein, you need fat. So you just need to ingest them in relatively healthy amounts, moderate amounts overall. Yeah. And then the exercise, like I'm very I've become very critical of this in the fitness industry. More on Instagram, my newsletter than maybe on Twitter, but so, so much in of fitness and fitness practices, it's there's you can create a lot of complexity if you want, but it doesn't accomplish anything more than doing things the simple, straightforward way. You know, to, to use the example you gave, stuff like drop sets or cluster sets or, or supersetting or circuit training, none of that makes any real difference. If you look at the exercise science data, the best, most effective way to train is to do basic what's called straight sets you just do one exercise at a time or maybe one or two or three sets the minimum effective volume is doing one set for an exercise if you just did one hard set for an exercise and you did eight exercises and left the gym twice a week you'd make gains you'd grow it's one set that's all you need you can do more of course but one set it's not not five it's one but doing simple straight sets one exercise at a time that gives you the best results for strength gains, muscle gains, pain relief, you know, you know, linear progress over time. You know, all the other stuff you, you can that you can do, whether it's it's drops or clusters or or pyramids, it, it, like thing I was talking like if you want to, if that seems cool, yeah, like have at it. Go ahead. But it's not making your training any much better at all. You know, arguably it might even make it worse because now you're introducing complexity where simplicity will have sufficed. I like it. I like that a lot. Um, I'm a big fan of keeping things simple, mostly because uh, I just seem to be genetically predisposed to complicating things. And, and I found that doesn't really work for me. I want to follow up with with this idea of keeping it simple. Um, we've had, well, uh, uh, l- let, me, let me drill down a little deeper. We've had a couple of different guests. One was an orthopedic surgeon. One was uh, um, uh, uh, a primary care doctor, both of whom made the same statement about uh, people with bone-on-bone pain Mm. who got metabolically healthy. They were queued up for surgery and ended up not having it because Hmm. even though they were still bone on bone, the pain went away. 
I've questioned both. I questioned both of them about it, and mm-hmm. and uh, neither of them really had uh, what sounded like a good scientific answer for why mm-hmm. they got better. My question for you is because you've trained so many people, my guess is you've seen something similar. Is that have you seen that kind of thing where people are dealing with with joint pains that would would typically be indicated? Uh, typically would indicate surgery was necessary. They got healthy and didn't need it. Do you see that? Oh, yes. Um, so you know, pain is pain is complex. Pain is complex. But you know, the, way to, the way to encapsulate that complexity. So pain is, is biopsychosocial. So there's a biological aspect to pain. There's a psychological aspect to it. And then you have a social aspect, which is sort of your the environmental aspect. And all that adds up to the pain experience. Your, your cells, other than themselves, like your, your arm, you have any part of your body. You don't have pain receptors. You have neurological receptors. Pain is an experience processed by the brain. Yeah. And I mean, this is, this is how numbing works. You know, like when we numb tissue, like what are we doing? Are we, we're stopping the pain receptors. No, we're just basically stopping the neurological flow from that area to the brain itself. Can't, you literally can't feel it. It's not registering. Um, you know, within sort of your, uh, your, you know, your four-dimensional, like, uh, you know, your four-dimensional neurological hormunculus, you know, your, your, your brain has. Um, for people who have joint pain, joint injuries, definitely there's a biological component. You, you don't, your cartilage oh, yeah. is worn out. Yeah, like your, your rotator cuff is just torn up. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things. Your meniscus, like, you know, like Michael's got a ton of scar tissue. Obviously, you can go, you can go but with any joint. It hurts. Okay. So yeah, there is there is a biological physical component where I'm sure it is damaged. Like it's if you were yeah. to image it, uh, it might look damaged. At the same time, though, you can have individuals, and this is very common in the uh, in radiography with imaging. This is why imaging is actually very notoriously unreliable for diagnosing joint issues. You can have people who supposedly have damage on an MRI or X-ray. They don't feel anything. It's a surprise to them. It's like, hey, did you know that you have a bull's disc, I do. Really? Yeah, and this is so notorious that about, you know, when I say notorious, when imaging is done, you know, like if you take like a massive imaging and it's self-reported, like is the person experiencing pain or not, half the time people with supposed damage don't feel anything. Then half the time you'll have people with no apparent imaging issues who are reporting extremely high levels of pain. So, you know, clearly something's not matching up or maybe the imaging is, it's not showing what we think it's showing. Yeah. Human beings are also very notorious and reliable. Where this, I, I forget what the specifics of this this particular study were, but basically it was a um, hundred X-rays were taken. They showed them to physicians. Those X-rays were just the same 10, ten images. I think like over and over and over again. They kept coming up with different diagnoses for the same image just to, just to find something wrong. Yeah, this, you know, they, AIs are far better at diagnosing based off of imaging than people are. Yeah, so so to make that point, like, okay, so these doctors are physically seeing something. Is that really what's happening? Maybe, maybe not. You know, you have to recognize you you might be um, unreliable in your diagnosis. So you have the biological aspect. You have the psychological component where once people get conditioned to pain, they expect to be in pain or in more pain. Yeah, and like that creates a negative feedback loop. Oh, the doctor told me my my shoulder's destroyed. Oh God! Now if I do anything, it's going to make it hurt more. Am I hurting myself more? Oh, you're already you're sensitizing yourself to a painful experience before it's even happening. You know, if the doctor told you nothing was wrong, doctor, my shoulder hurts. Well, you know, your imaging's fine. Must have just been a random pain. Don't worry about it. Oh, okay. Um, and this this is again this there's clinical data on this. This has been proven out with sham surgery studies. Yeah. Uh, the, the knees in particular, where people have meniscus tears. They go in, we're going to do surgery on your knee. There's no surgery done. They get put to sleep, wake up, nothing ever took place. Knee pain's gone. It, nothing, there's no physical change that's taken place, but because the brain mind thinks that it's been fixed, it's decided that it doesn't hurt anymore. So that, that's, a, that's the psychological aspect. This is deep stuff here. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. And so then, this, then lastly, you do have the social environment, which you know, that's the input from your doctor. That's the input from the gym you train at, your friends, the people that you know, the culture that you live in. Different cultures handle pain differently. 
I think I've, I've traveled abroad, like in the United States, we have this molecular chemical biased view that we can treat everything with drugs. Essentially. It's like, okay, this hurts painkiller. Uh, I have anxiety. Here's an anti-anxiety drug. I'm depressed. Here's an anti-depression drug. You know, like I've, I, I'm, I, I mean, I've, I've had a number of, uh, you know, minor injuries over the years where you know, I thought I had maybe, maybe fractured something in the wrist. It healed on its own. Like I know how to treat my body. Every time I've ever have gone in for anything, just to just maybe have an x-ray done. I always get offered painkillers. I'm not asking for them. It's like, you know, like I, I remember it last year. Um, I thought maybe like, I felt like I broke off like a piece of my kneecap from having my knee collide. I'm like, that feels weird. Let me just have a cheap x-ray done. Yeah, you know, went to urgent care. Took an image of it. Oh, okay. A little bit, you know, you busted off a tip. Does it hurt? Eh, it's not that bad. Okay. You want me to write you, send you a prescription? You know, like I give you a prescription for, you know, whatever. Well, I'm like, I, I don't want a prescription. I'm, I'm fine. Like, I, I, don't, I don't need to treat the pain. Yeah, you know, I mean the, the pain industry of itself, that's a whole whole thing we could dive into. How how we regard pain. But maybe to, to next make, time. Maybe next time. But but to make the comparison, to make a comparison, if, if like so Thailand, I lived in Thailand for almost a year. I trained Muay Thai. The Thai attitude towards pain is very different from the American attitude. It's a different social environment. If you are hurting there, you know, especially in like a fight environment, unless you are grievously injured, deal with it. You're going to be okay. The body, like it, it, they, there's a very different Eastern belief, Oriental belief, that the body has recuperative powers, that your mind is going to affect the experience. So if you believe your body's still strong and you're willing to work through it, and you know, maybe you, you, you modify training as necessary, you don't just quit, like you'll heal. It will be okay. Yeah. Um, you know, that's why it's very rare to see guys take tons of time off from an injury. Yeah, unless they literally broke their leg or something, your, your wrist is hanging off that you can't even lift it. Tendons are torn. Okay, yeah, like get get surgery. If not, you just work around it. Do what you can. You'll heal. Believe that you can heal, and you'll be fine. Now, I'm being I'm being reductionist with it. It gets it gets deeper than that because of their you know the religious aspects for them. But you compare that to the U.S., where every minor you know, pain, stomach ache, cough, doctor, I want an antibiotic. I want it right now. Yeah. You just you have a runny nose. Give me the antibiotic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like we we love drugs. So also so summarize all that. You know, so pain being biopsychosocial, all that creates this experience, that mental experience. Whether that is impeding your ability to heal, you know, from a joint pain, joint injury, or whether that you know if you start training and you start believing that you can get stronger, and there is an analgesic effect. And I fully butcher that. There is a pain deadening effect from um, exercise resistance training. That that's clinically proven. The, the 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 most reliable way to treat pain you know, without drugs is exercise. If you do a general strength training program with machines twice a week, one or two sets to failure, your body will hurt less. You will have more energy. Your muscles will feel stronger. Your flexibility will improve. All these things will improve without necessarily addressing them correctly. And it may be that you know what your knees, shoulders stop hurting. And then you don't need the surgery. I love it. Years ago, uh, over 20 years ago, um, I loved to play basketball. I was, I was on the court all the time. And uh, I was getting older and came down from, with a rebound and my knee hurt so bad. It was, mm-hmm. I realized at that point that the pain was greater than the fun. And it was literally the first time in my entire life that the pain hurt more than the fun felt good. So I quit playing ball and ended up going to a, a doctor, a surgeon. Guess what mm-hmm. the surgeon told me? I need surgery. Yeah. Well, I was scheduled to leave the country for an extended period of time. I said, man, I'm going I'm to postpone. I, I don't want to get surgery right now. Where I lived overseas, I lived in a three-story flat. Uh, my bedroom was on the top floor, so I had to climb three stairs multiple times. I did three sets of stairs multiple times a day. The office I worked in was on the sixth floor, and I would usually just take the stairs. By the time I got home a year later, guess what? You didn't hurt. Me felt fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was just one of a myriad of experiences I've had like that that have, that have made me somewhat uh, skeptical about the accepted uh, approach to health and wellness and healing. Phil, yeah, I, I love this guy. I could I could just sit and talk 
all day long, but I realized this is actually your show and I'm probably, I probably need to shut up. <laughs> no, I think that that was a great discussion. And I think, um, you know, to bring that point around, you know, a lot of improving our health really just comes down to stop damaging your health, you know, uh, stop, stop eating the crap and stop, you know, just sitting around being inactive uh, and the body can heal uh, a lot of this stuff if we just stop actively doing damage to it. Um, before we wrap up, though, I, I want to hear a little bit more, Alexander. You mentioned, you know, you had spent the year in Thailand and you were training uh, martial arts over there. And uh, it was a fascinating journey to kind of follow online. And uh, I think, you know, it was as much maybe philosophical as it was, uh, you know, physical. Uh, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, what what you learned over there, what that experience was like and how it changed uh, some of the ways that you, you know, approach a lot of the uh, fitness uh, stuff these days. Yeah, so that was in so that was 2020. So when COVID was happening, lockdowns, that's where I was. So I, actually, I had a great year. 2020 was amazing year. Um, you know, training Muay Thai specifically. So Muay Thai is Thai kickboxing. Um, and it's been practiced there for, you know, depending upon who you ask, like it's been done for at least about five centuries. So it has a very, very long historical background. You know, the, the kingdom of Thailand, it's, it's very old. Uh, that's been a settled area for thousands of years. Their culture is very old. So their training practices haven't changed in many centuries. They train twice a day. Uh, the training is obviously very cardiovascular. There isn't anything that really resembles modern strength and conditioning in the, the Thai way. The emphasis is on the skills, building fundamentals with the, the movements themselves, and then also encouraging you to run like as often as you can. When I was there, it's, I mean, it was beneficial like on a personal level. You're, you're a man, you're learning how to fight, you know, it's reinforcing your masculinity. You know, it's, we could talk about that. But, you know, from a fitness standpoint, it was really fascinating for me. Because so much of what we believe in the United States about sports training or strength conditioning or exercise, it's very, what I just deem, weight room dominant. We want to believe that you got to be in the weight room. You got to be lifting weights X amount of hours a week. That's going to make you a magnitude, you know, or is a magnitude better athlete. You know, that's important. Then you have these athletes there, these TIE fighters, who don't do any of that. They, just, they train all day doing the sport itself and they run. And they have longer careers and way more fights and way less injuries. And their approach to training is much more holistic. And so it led me to question a lot of like, okay, we have this whole strength conditioning bias in American fitness. Maybe a lot of it's wrong. You know, maybe, maybe lifting weights isn't so important for sports. Uh, you know, maybe being, you know, maybe being muscular, it's not just about being muscular. There's other aspects of physical capacity and ability with your elasticity with fascial health, with your ability to balance and rebound. Maybe you know, these things are worth diving into. So, I mean, it's, it's a lot of things to, to list out, but it was, it was a very good welcome form of cognitive dissonance since it just it led me to examine, okay, like, what, do, what, do I, what am I wrong about with, you know, what I currently think? Maybe I'm wrong about a lot of things. Um, and that's kind of what got me into, actually. That's, in fact, what catalyzed, like, the ancient Greek studies. I'm like, okay, these guys have been training the same way for literally 500 years. How were people training 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago? Um, and you find out cool stuff. You learn, you learn cool things. You know, one of the biggest ones uh, that I realized was that squatting, as we do today, like the, you know, the barbell back squat, that's a very recent phenomenon in terms of exercise. Only in the last roughly 100 years has the squat become this dominant movement that we're, we're told that we're, like, we must do it. It's the king of exercises. Yeah. When I was studying the ancient Greek historical records, of which a lot exist, there's no record of them doing squats at all. Like, I, I mean, none. You can't find anything at all in ancient Greek that describes a squat motion. I, I mean, nothing. Now, what you can find is a lot of recommendations for, for running, for uphill sprints, basically, for wrestling, for I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole list of exercises that are actually described in the literature. It's like stuff's like you know, again, two thousand years old. Like, okay, do this, do this, do this, do this. This is for general conditioning. This is for power. This is for you know, explosive ability. There's no squats. 
that that's oh wow okay so maybe this movement that we think is so essential for sports performance is it really that essential you know one of my one of the things i questioned years ago when i was actively training clients you know every day was i'm testing people on like their squat mobility but is this a test where it's set to fail is it reasonable to test somebody on something that you already know they're going to be bad at and that they never do like you know how how is that a good criteria of assessment um which that was sort of its own like i wrote probably i wrote a couple of new letter newsletters and almost treaties on this um yeah, leg, training legs is important don't get me wrong like you, you want to be able to go right. up and down like it's very essential to have strong legs you know but this idea that certain exercises are absolutely critical like are there other ways to train legs can you lunge can you could, you could you leg press could you do split squats could your squats just be done with lighter weight do they have to be done heavy with weight on your spine on your back is that so critical i don't believe I, it is at all i want to thank you for that um i i was back squatting for a while and mm -hmm. and i'll confess i i loved it and hated it it was it was the most emotionally intimidating lift that i would do um but it was also such an emotional rush to to do a big squat oh yeah and then i read your you you wrote a, a, a may have been a twitter thread or maybe a newsletter i don't remember but it was something along the lines of 22 reasons not to do a back squat. I don't remember exactly what it was, but mm -hmm. you said something along the lines of 100% of my clients who do back squats get injured. <laughs> and, and I had recently just been injured. Yeah. Doing what? Back squat. And, yeah. Uh, it convinced me at that point that there were, there were other ways to get the same work accomplished without as much as I loved it, without putting that that bar on my back, and uh, and I no longer back squat. I, I still deadlift. I love to deadlift, but I don't back squat anymore. No, so, that, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, I mean, this is like exercise always has to be customized to the highest level. Um, you know, so I mean, I can always be critical of certain lifts. That's not to say that back squatting should never be done. There are people where they have very optimal anatomical structure. You can put a bar on them and they go up, they go down. It looks yeah, great. It feels I'm, good. I'm six, four and slender. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, you, you don't have the optimal mechanics, uh, you know, the optimal body structure. Um, you know, but yeah, like it, you, what you see this as, as yeah, like, I've, like, I've always, like I said at the beginning, I've always had a bias for historical evidence. What I noticed as I just went through my career you know, and studied new guys who've been training a long time is that at some point or another, everybody that squats heavy, that really made that a focal point of training they can't do it anymore. You know, it's like, you know, and this is, I will readily admit, there's no like hard clinical data on this. You know, it'd be very hard to assess a bunch of veteran lifters and ask them, you know, this is, this, this is based off of gym experience. But everybody that I know, that I know, who's a hardcore lifter that's 40 and beyond, it's, it is, it's 100%. All of them have gone injured squatting, whether it's a spinal injury, whether it's a hip injury, whether it's, some combination thereof, whether it's a hernia, whether it's neck, whether it's shoulder, like something hurts and they really struggle to do it. If they even do it at all, most of yeah. them don't. There's, there's, I have, I have one good friend of mine, Donnie Thompson. He actually beat great guest for the show, but, uh, so he was the first guy to total 3000 pounds in the squat bench deadlift and equipped oh lifting. My God. Yeah. So he, he had over a thousand pounds on his back. Um, you know, when he broke that record and he oh still God. squats to this day, but the way he squats, he uses a specialized bar. He does a very specific warm up movement preparation on his body to handle that much weight. He squats to a, like a Bosu ball or a box. Like he had, like he's Jerry rigged the lift and made it very specific. Of, and he, he's very cognizant of this. He's like, I am trying my absolute best to minimize all the potential, potential damage from this exercise. He doesn't squat with a straight bar at all. He has a special curve bar. It minimizes the shoulder stress. It minimizes spinal stress. Lies him upright torso. All these things. I'm like okay, so that, like that's intelligent. That's that's one guy. Everybody else has got had horrible, grievous injuries from it. Yeah. Um, now these are these are high level lifters, right? These are guys like they're Iron Brothers. Okay. For the average person, you know, average Joe in the gym. Do I want you doing a lift that at some point in the near future is going to leave you kind of injured, that then takes you out of the gym, that then breaks you up your training practice, that then discourages you from the process? 
do I want you doing that? Or could I get you stronger, build muscle, build a habit, keep you consistent, doing something else that's just as potent and effective, but safer? I'm going to go with a safer option. Yeah, I, I don't care about whether you think the lift is tough. Like there, there are far better ways to measure your masculinity machismo than how much weight you can lift on an exercise. Like it's it's cool. I, I love lifting heavy weight. It's fun. Every guy loves lifting heavy weight. You like slamming the bar down or seeing place where I like, of course that's fun. Of course it is. Um, you can do all that and still be broke and poor and divorced and kids hate you. Like it's, that's, it's, it's a poor, like I said, it's, it's a poor metric of masculinity. It's very temporal. Like it, uh, I, I would not build your identity around that. I would really discourage it. You know? Unless you are truly elite and that's your, that's your thing, right? Yeah. If that's yeah. your thing, that's your thing. 99% of guys, that's not your thing. It's just something you do to have some muscle and hopefully look good with your shirt off. You know, don't take it so seriously that way. <laughs> So what's next for Ajax? What's what what do you got coming up soon that we can look forward to? What are you um, working on? So short-term pipeline, I have a lower body training guide that I'm writing right now. I just released one on back training, um, which I was really happy with. So I I upgraded sort of my my team that helps me with my products. So I've really been able to take this a really what I think is a really phenomenal anatomical approach with you know illustrations and videos showing very concretely you know like i was saying like this is how you train effectively this is these are the exercises the sets these are the reps here are examples for everything here are visual models like it's a f- fantastic resource so the lower body training guide that will be coming out in about four weeks that'll be released um my wife just gave birth to our first son like Congratulations. Three and a half weeks ago, almost four weeks ago. Congrats. Yeah. So that's, I'm a dad now. So that's cool. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's really cool. It's my so favorite like, job ever. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to sort of basically seeing him grow up and being a father. Um, yeah. Then long term, I'm completing that training series essentially of like how to train products. Um, and I finally have the necessary setup to, launch film a youtube channel i have a like i have a home gym now that outfit and equipped and got the cameras and everything so that'll get going this month um yeah so basically just trying to create more resources for people more educational resources very good great well i i would like to point out that um i've seen oh a handful of alexander's videos on how to do particular exercises and they are hands down the best I've ever seen and I've watched a lot. He breaks it down, he makes it simple. What to, uh, he shows the right way and the wrong way to do it. I'm usually doing it the wrong way. So uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Alexander's videos. Thank you. That's, that's good feedback. Yeah, I would certainly uh, echo. I think uh, anyone looking for some good uh, fitness resources, uh, I would point them your way. So uh, why don't you tell? Uh, people the best place to uh, find those resources yes so twitter account obviously i have aja underscore cortez i have a twitter account so yeah i I tweet pretty much daily my instagram has a ton of you know short form exercise tutorials and i think i've got around 50 60 at this point of just how to do particular exercises and train correctly um and i've been seeing a lot of people there because you know having a visual example you know that's the best way to learn right and then I have my newsletter on my website, Cortez.site. And the newsletter usually goes out about two or three times a week. And that typically will cover various fitness topics, subjects more in depth, whether it be progressive overload for nutrition, you know, or, you know, or pain, like a biopsychosocial model I've talked about, you know, low treating, treating low back pain. Um, so that's more long form content on how to solve specific problems, issues that arise, and what to do. Very good. Well, we'll make sure all of those show up in the show notes for both the uh, audio and video versions of the show. Um, I would love to sit and talk with you about historical ancient sources and what you've learned, but we're way past time. Okay. Phil, (laughs) anything else we ought to do before uh, before we wrap it for the day? No, another another uh, great conversation this week. I think uh, people get a lot of uh, useful uh, information out of this and uh, keep moving forward towards uh, better health.
Absolutely. I hope so. All right. Well, uh, Alexander, I appreciate you being here with us. I've been looking forward to this uh, conversation ever since Phil hooked it. Um, for Philovania, I'm Jack Heal. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. You can follow Phil on Twitter at iFixHearts. You can take his metabolic health quiz at iFixHearts.co. And you can uh, contact him and see if you can get him to just take care of your health in general at ovaniaheartheath.com. And we'll talk to you all next week. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avedia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.